Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us John Powell's score to the 2010 3D computer animated fantasy adventure film, How to Train Your Dragon. How to Train Your Dragon was written by Will Davis, Dean DeBlois, and Chris Sanders, based on the books by Cressida Cowell. It was produced by Bonnie Arnold at DreamWorks Animation, and it was directed by Chris Sanders and Dean DeBlois. John, I'm sure some of our audience knows very well what goes on in How to Train Your Dragon, but some of them don't. So help us out. Tell us about How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, well, it's covered in some detail in the movie, but I don't have any of the equipment. Oh, you mean just about the movie. So it is a big, rollicking, fun, colorful, family-friendly animated movie about a village of Vikings that must coexist one way or another with a whole slew of different kinds of dragons. The main character is a misfit teenager Viking who is at odds with his enormously barrel-chested masculine Viking father. Their respective attitudes towards dragons are at odds and must be reconciled. Our young protagonist, Hiccup, is played by Jay Baruchel. His father, the village chief, Stoic the Vast, is played by Gerard Butler. Other Vikings are played by America Ferreira, Craig Ferguson, Jonah Hill, Christopher Mintz-Plaz, TJ Miller, and Kristen Wiig. So Hiccup is relatively small and weak, but he's mechanically minded, and he figures out a contraption with which he shoots down a rare and powerful dragon. He strikes up an unlikely friendship with this dragon, who comes to be known as Toothless, and together they work on changing the hearts and minds of the rest of the Viking villagers in how they think about dragons. Good enough? Good enough. So one thing, Andy, that I know is different about both of us between now and when this movie came out in 2010, (laughs) (laughs) do you know what I'm going to say? I think I do. Is that uh, now we both live with cats. (laughs) Yeah, it is relevant to this movie. (laughs) When I saw the movie in 2010... Becky went on and on about how cat-like they made the dragon toothless. And now watching it again with a cat of my very own, (laughs) golly, she's right. Yeah, it's a movie about your relationship with your pet cat. And I felt them exploiting those feelings for all they could. (laughs) He's more like he's kind of like a salamander cat. Well, sure, but definitely acts like a cat in key ways. He acts like a cat. Oh, speaking of which, one second. Toby, no, no, that's the one thing to not do down here. Toby. You get him, Toby. <laughs> Hilarious timing. I'm sorry. He was doing one of the baddest things he does, which is peel the wood off of the door. <laughs> Did you maybe offer him a, a fish? <clears throat> so uh, I will say, as a companion to a cat, I have a correction to make in these movies. <laughs> oh. They portray that when the dragon is at its most friendly and relatable, its eyes go wide and its pupils open up. And then when it's wild and dangerous, they get narrow. Oh, that's the jungle beast in it. And you have to be careful when its eyes are narrow. 
a cat owner knows that is backward. Hmm. Every time they showed the eyes getting narrow and like, oh, now he's a dragon who knows what he'll do. I thought, no, it's the opposite. When those pupils get big, you got to watch out. They're going to bite you. <laughs> okay. That's my cat fancier comment. <laughs> Look, John, I got a lot to say about this movie. I had a whole complicated ride with this movie. Oh, and, wow. Uh, maybe we should just get a sense of where each of us is coming from before we dive into however long this episode is. Okay. Complicated, you say. I, I don't know if I can reciprocate complicated. I I've, bet I can make your reaction complicated. I, I kind of feel like maybe you can. You saw this in 2010, right? Because when I it did. came up, you said, oh, this is a good movie. And I was just quiet because I didn't want to say yet that I hadn't seen it. But I hadn't seen it. All right. Yeah, what was your history with this? Yeah, we saw it in 2010 and had a real good time. Thought it was a delight. I hadn't seen it. And just for the listener to get a sense of where I'm coming from, I sat down and I watched it. And I thought, well, that was, a, you know, a fine kids movie about a kid and a dragon. And I uh, had good score. And uh, I guess we'll talk about this. And then I went online to start looking into it. <laughs> and I felt like I was gazing into a pit full of thousands of writhing dragons. <laughs> there is an unbelievable amount of fandom surrounding this movie, its score, its sequels. And we haven't even mentioned, in addition to the two sequels, just an endless supply of How to Train Your Dragon content. They are still making How to Train Your Dragon spin-off like Netflix series, and there's the 15 books, and it's just a whole universe. It says here a live-action reboot is in the works, scheduled to be released in 2025, which is news to me as of now. I think there's also a live stage show. I think there's a, like On Ice it's that big. And as someone who neither was a child nor had a child in 2010, I was completely unaware. The assignment here to respond to a thing because it is beloved, I, I felt like, I guess I need to get up to speed and it seems like a really high speed. And I already feel this nervous feeling that my shruggingly positive reaction to the movie I, I was just planning to kind of say stuff I often say of like, well, I thought this worked. I don't know if that worked. I, it would have been better if this was like this. When I started to look into what people think about the score to How to Train Your Dragon, what they think is that it is the most profoundly moving world to live in that they've ever experienced from a movie score. And now, of course, a lot of the people expressing this were in fact 10 years old when the movie came out and are now 23 and are posting comments online about my childhood, you know, crying emoji, crying emoji. And so there's a lot bound up in this that biographically isn't bound up in it for me. But I also, there there are musicians talking deeply about the music. There is so much attention focused on this. I thought I have to be worthy of entering this arena. So I watched it more times than I've watched any of these other movies. And I watched both of the sequels. And I really packed my head with it. And over the course of that packing process, my reaction to it changed. And I felt like that change probably is part of the reputation of the movie, because most of the people who have a strong relationship to this movie are people who grew up watching it over and over as one of their childhood movies. And that's almost a, like a separate kind of artistic experience than just going to the movies and seeing a movie once. And so I I have a whole like word cloud in my head of different ways we can go with this. And yeah, I want to get a sense from you 
have uh, which ways you want to go with it and how that interrelates with where I'm coming from. I mean, look, I'll cop to some nerves about this, too. I became aware of the same, you know, infinite library of analyses and meditations on this score that you can find on YouTube with all kinds of breathlessly clickbaity titles about this thematic masterpiece. Yeah, in a way that I don't quite remember being exposed to about any of the other <laughs> scores that we've done, including, you know, some of the big time heavy hitter, all time great scores that we've done. There's as much in-depth reporting and fine tooth comb <laughs> going through this as there is Star Wars practically. There really is. It felt like oh, these people are getting their Star Wars on about this. Yeah, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that about this score between the years of 2010 and 2023. And during that time, yes, I had a blithely positive feeling about the movie and its score. I thought, yeah, well, yeah, that was a that was a really a fine movie. You know, that was a good time. And, and sure, its score, it was very music forward. I remember that, and it was good. The music was good. So <laughs> I was... Genuinely excited to dive into this, but the sort of diving that we ordinarily do as part of our prep, I think it overwhelmed both of us. It's fair to say we we both got kind of in our heads about this because we know that, golly, lots of people have talked about this already. Yeah, I was tempted, and maybe we'll do a little of it here, to make an overwhelm montage of videos <laughs> on YouTube because it is overwhelming. Okay. Like, I didn't have time to watch all of Analyzing How to Train Your Dragon Part 1. I want to talk about how Pal uses music to elevate... And How to Train Your Dragon is a masterclass in theme writing. the same melody. And why How to Train Your Dragon has the best opening ever. And why is this music so memorable, How to Train Your Dragon. And the greatest animated film of our time, How to Train Your Dragon. And how to compose flying music like John Powell. And why Hiccup and Astrid are the best couple in history, their full story, which is a five-hour video. I didn't have time. Yeah, I was intimidated by exactly the same slate of stuff and I don't mean to run down any of it I think a lot of those people are doing good work you know like that guy who plays stuff on the piano and makes faces about it I think he makes like really exactly the right faces about a lot of stuff well I did start finding myself thinking like what do we do on the podcast yeah. is it this are we doing something different from this do we have to differentiate ourselves from this I, I did start kind of stepping back and thinking what is this what's going on here there is this phenomenon in this internet age in which we live, especially, but it actually predates the internet, of content that purports to be explaining and demystifying something that really needed no explaining or demystifying. It's, I think, just a fan's compulsion. Like, what can you do with this thing other than be a fan with it, beyond being just a fan of it? Oh, you could go to fan school, or you could run a fan school. I think back to books that have been around forever with titles like The Ultimate Guide to <laughs> whatever, The Starship Enterprise, like you needed I a had guide. The Ultimate Guide to The Starship Enterprise, <laughs> I was about to say, and I was super excited when I got it because I was like, yeah, now I will ultimately know now about it. Now you'll know because prior yeah. to that you were lost. You were just wandering around <laughs> like a fool. I didn't know what deck to go to. But now you have The Ultimate I... Guide. So people's passion about How to Train Your Dragon is so strong that the fan school phenomenon has grown up around it. Yeah, that's true. Anything that you need explained about How to Train Your Dragon, it is being explained at any moment in time. <laughs> and it made me feel like, all right, so we don't need to explain anything. And I kind of hope that 
on this show. We aren't running a fan school because I hope that we are never putting across the impression that until you've heard it explained, you didn't know what you were getting. I don't think any of this needs explaining. And when you hear someone saying, well, here's the name of the harmony and here's what's going on here, it can trigger this response of, gosh, I I didn't know until now. And I I don't want to endorse that and I don't want to do it. And I guess that goes for all of our episodes, but I feel it even more strongly now because so much of that just came at me. Like, ooh, a lot of people (laughs) explained how to train your dragon to me. So we should do some of that because we're talking about it. But it's really interesting. I mean, obviously we have spent a lot of time naming chords at people and trying to deploy some kind of explanation of a, a little bit of music theory about why things sound the way they do. But I agree that, you know, just getting told the names of things isn't really understanding it and certainly isn't necessary to enjoy it. Right. That's what I started to feel self-conscious and concerned about. It isn't really understanding it, but it can create the impression that it has taken you around a corner of understanding that ends up devaluing the understanding you already have. Hmm. And so I never want to create that impression. Well, I think that to his credit, John Powell himself kind of feels the same way that you do. Well, that's something else I want to say, I guess, at the beginning here. I came away from my first viewing, and I took a bunch of notes, because I know after you watch something three times, you think differently about it. So I wanted to remember, remember the first time you watched this, this and that made sense to you, but this and that didn't. I took notes on things that I was dubious about or hadn't really drawn a strong relationship to. And then after I found out that this is a religion and how dare you, I started to feel sheepish about, am I going to go on the podcast and sound like I have a terrible attitude yet again? And then I read some stuff that John Powell said about this score and saw some interviews with him, and he was backing me up. Yeah, His reservations about his own score seemed to me insightful and balanced and on the money and I have great respect for him both in the things I really admire about this score and the things that I'm going to say well but what about this he was saying that too he was saying exactly that thing and in the liner notes to the deluxe edition there's a point where he says well this opening you know from one point of view it's good but from another point of view it has problems and then the liner note writer says (laughs) Ignoring his like ridiculous false modesty, this is actually like the best opening ever. <laughs> he doesn't ever. say false modesty. He says self-deprecation or something. Yeah, like his yeah. self-deprecation, as though like this is just a quirk of an artist who can't embrace his greatness. And I thought, no, that's <laughs> a really smart artist who has a standard that he is aspiring to. So hopefully, if I say anything critical in the course of this, the graduates of fan school will not think that I'm trying to rain on any parade. I. I'm all for it. Well, part of what I mean by John Powell agrees with you about the relative unimportance of naming things and clinging to a superficial understanding of labels for things. Part of what I mean by that is he has made his score just chock-a-block full of themes. It is an intensely thematic score. And yeah, you can watch videos where people say, this is this guy's theme. This is the dragon theme. This is, And you know, you can tell it's a good score because look, this theme plays here and then it plays here. And then this other theme is in between. And you know, we have obviously talked about themes on the show a lot and named them and said this is the theme for this. But there's also often, and it's often in your voice, Andy, a skepticism <laughs> about, well, what's the good of naming the theme because the viewer, the audience member, doesn't think of it that way. 
Similarly, John Powell doesn't think of it that way. He has really eschewed the idea that these themes are attached specifically to individual characters in the way that so many other themes and so many other themes that we've talked about in these terms are. He has written this book of themes that relate loosely to concepts, to undercurrents of emotion. And he will take these themes and will play them under many different situations. For many different characters, points of view, and he dresses them up in different clothes. He makes them major and minor, and he goes to these themes all the time. You can find them worked through every which way around in so many different guises but he's doing so with a kind of a intentionally loose application, an impressionistic cloud of what kind of ideas in the air here rather than what characters on the screen. Yeah, that is definitely the effect of the score. And I guess after a lot of digesting and fretting about this, <laughs> my take that I landed on a couple hours ago. Wow, nick of time. Just in the nick of time. But I mean, it's still bubbling, so you can mold this if you have different takes. My take is, I feel like this score is only partially or loosely or laxly integrated with the story action of the movie. I think that the dramaturgical function, as I sometimes say, is imprecise mm -hmm. in ways that on behalf of the story of the movie, I could criticize and say, well, especially as a first-time viewer, it left me hanging with this and it emphasized this in a way I didn't know what to make of, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe we'll say some of those things. But I do think that in the long run, for the kind of dwelling inside it forever that children do with their favorite things, that dramaturgical looseness has actually benefited how intense the musicality of the movie is as a whole. Mm. Whether it's intentional or whether it's serendipitous, I'm not really sure, but I felt like I journeyed from one end of that experience to the other in the course of watching it over and over. The first time I felt like I wasn't being guided by the music at times when I needed some guide, but once I had internalized the entire movie, the imprecision becomes an asset to a certain kind of movie watching, and I ended up musing a lot about different ways of relating to a movie and how a score ends up kind of choosing among those. And this chooses one that I think is probably so well suited to the way that kids watch a movie like this that it helped make this into the, the juggernaut. It apparently is. How does that sound to you? I like that. I think that's right. Yeah, I'll take that take of yours out of your uh, furnace there and I'll take it over <laughs> here on my anvil and I'll hammer it a little bit myself. I think that has to be right. His willingness to be imprecise with what these themes attached to winds up being empowering for an audience to kind of build their own emotional response to it. You know, it kind of sets up a bunch of emotional building blocks for the audience. You know, rather than this is the music for this character, he is feeling it in an emotional way. This is the music for this emotion. This is the music for this, like, kind of a worldview. 
then he puts them all against the movie as like a do-it-yourself kit. Like, oh, you can take this emotion and add it to that emotion and modulate it through this worldview. It builds up an emotional punch that is, yeah, I think you're right, different and maybe stronger than a more strict thematic adherence might have been. Okay, let's play some of these themes so we can hear them mutating and building up and doing different things. I suspect that the way a bunch of this was written was, I actually saw Powell in in an interview saying that he got this from hearing John Williams say it years ago, you write the payoff first, and then you can plan to lead up to that in a way where it feels like the inevitable blossoming of something that was latent throughout the beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, let me read that quote from the liner notes. Okay, yeah. Powell's quoted in the liner notes as saying, I remember reading a John Williams interview where he said he always starts with the end of the movie and gets the big key scene right. And then gradually throughout the movie, going backwards to the beginning, he dissolves the melodies so that they form throughout the film, which explains so much about why you know these tunes so well when they come. That's the brilliant thing about him, is you get to the point where you hear these big tunes and you've probably heard them being constructed underneath you. That always struck me as the right way to do it, says John Powell. And boy, he really does that here. For one tune in particular, there is one thing that clearly he had that thought process about, right? I think you could probably say that he had it about many of them, but certainly the big one, the one that is probably everybody's favorite takeaway musical sequence. And I think it would be fair to say is the theme of the movie. This is the identity of this score, if it had to be summed up. It's the melody that plays for the wonderful climactic scene of Hiccup finally having figured out how to pilot Toothless the Dragon with the prosthetic fin that he puts on his tail and he figures out how he can fly the dragon around. It is a wonderful moment. That's my fault. Yeah, yeah, I'm on it. Position four, uh, three. This isn't the end of the movie. It's a key moment in the middle of the movie. But I did read that this is the first material that Powell wrote when approaching the movie. He applied this Williams technique that he was thinking of with the end point in mind of he wants this flying theme to feel like it has arrived organically. He wants to give the feeling that you've been tracking it, you've been exposed to it in different ways, and therefore when it comes into clear focus, It is satisfying and seems necessary. And I think it's beautifully done. Yeah, this is definitely the main theme of the movie. It's the first thing that you hear right over the DreamWorks logo at the very top. I mean, it's a very simple theme with a very simple idea of its contour. And then kind of repeats it. By picking something so simple, that opens the door for him to do it with many different harmonizations and with many different feelings behind it. And he really charges through that door. Like when Hiccup comes across Toothless where he's kind of trapped in this little hollow in the rocks because he can't fly out. He puts these kind of wonder mystical chords on that contour. And this is kind of a seeding of the idea that this musical shape goes with this. 
grasp this shape. Those particular chords, he said that this was inspired by harmonies in The Firebird by Stravinsky. Mm. I imagine that the connection in his head is it's also about going to a magic garden to find a magical flying creature. It's not exactly the same modes that Stravinsky uses, but it's this idea of an exoticized mode creating a magical otherness. And then Hiccup reads the Viking's book all about dragons. And we hear more of this kind of mysterious take on this contour. It's like he's introducing you to this kind of mystical elemental force that has yet to be fully clarified, has yet to be harnessed. And then part of the story of the movie is that Hiccup learns things about dragons that enable him to perform well in the dragon fighting training ring. And one instance when he does that is he's learned that dragons are afraid of eels for some reason. And so he cows the two-headed dragon in the training ring. Which again, this mystical version of the proto-flying theme. Why are all these things united by the same musical idea? Hard to put your finger on, right? It just gives you a feeling that there is something elemental, there is something significant, something worthwhile. You know, we have kind of yet to learn exactly what that is. Yes, if your ear hears those things as united. But this is a central example of what I'm saying about the different modes of viewing. When I watched it the first time, I'll say that this phrase that we've just heard in a bunch of different variants didn't really identify itself to me as a trackable thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas the second phrase of this theme, its contour stands out clearly enough because it's bolder. The second phrase of the flying theme, which he saves essentially for the moment of the flying. Right. That is its blossoming that is it's coming into fruition we've had very sparse pre-knowledge of this in fact the most important pre-seeding of this second half of the theme is at the very very beginning mm -hmm. as we're being introduced to the village of burke we hear this theme as though it's a folk tune as though it's some deep lore, some emotional framework, prehistory. Mm. The world is defined by this sound at the very, very beginning, and then we don't really hear it again, and then when he flies, it comes into its own. So there's another really important musical idea that he wrote into this piece for the big flying sequence, which is called Test Drive on the soundtrack. Right. The kind of companion idea to that flying theme that we talked about is this faster set of notes. Is it a theme? Is it an ostinato? It's a sort of a set of arpeggios around some descending chords, and then there are some down steps. And I feel like this is the other piece of material that he really puts through the most paces in the movie that gives him the opportunity to work with it and deconstruct it and recast it in different ways. I think even perhaps more so than the main flying. Yeah. 
At first, I thought that was a kind of a figuration yeah. that he was letting lead a life of its own, but it really is, the life of its own is on equal footing, pretty much, with the tune. It really is. I've seen people refer to this as Toothless's theme. Again, I don't think that's quite right because he's not thinking of it as Toothless's theme, but I can see why you would be tempted to say that. Because when we first kind of meet Toothless, when Hiccup is deciding whether or not to kill him, but no, he doesn't, and sets him free instead. I think this is the first time we hear it in the movie, when Hiccup sort of rises up and he's trying to steal himself to stab him, even though he's not going to be able to bring himself to do it. There's this kind of elegiac minor version of it. takes that descending line towards the end, the tail of it, and continues it on in kind of this tragic unfolding down, down into this kind of anticlimax because he doesn't go through with it. And then when Toothless is set free of the ropes and there's this tense standoff and he like puts his face right up in Hiccup's face and stares at him, then we hear that minor version of that melody. really featured and it's played on one of these ethnic instruments that we're going to name a bunch of. This one's called the gadulka, which is, I think, a Bulgarian stringed instrument. It kind of looks like a lute, but like I think you set it on your lap and you play a bow across the neck of it. So, yeah, I mean, this theme definitely gets pinned to Toothless with this stare down. But then, gosh, it does so many other things. Like, it comes back for that dragon book I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, there's like a dulcimer playing a minor version. Yeah, exactly, this somewhat spooky, ominous minor version of it. Yeah, on the hammer dulcimer. The first few times that we hear it, it is minor. I don't think we hear we turned into major until this important kind of montage cue called Forbidden Friendship when the boy and the dragon sort of come to trust one another and accept each other. Yeah, I feel like the point of that cue was kind of the birth of the major version of that motif. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a thing that we had only heard as scary, but then it gets transmogrified because they're learning about each other and it feels good. But having had that new version of it, as you say, birthed in this queue, it hasn't yet been married with the other part of the flying theme. I think the first time that happens is part of the montage where Hiccup is learning all kinds of different ways to control the flight, and he's got the dragon tethered onto a tree stump and is sort of treating the dragon like a kite in the wind as a training method. I think that's the first time that we kind of hear the broad flying theme with these faster noted flying theme put together. I think there's a kind of a premonition of it at the end of the Forbidden Friendship cue, but the first real taste of flight is at that moment. Yeah, and then, yeah, the test drive, when they finally do it, when it's this moment of exultation, starts with big version of the ostinato on bagpipes, more ethnic instruments mixed into the orchestra, and goes back and forth with it, and then there are 
couple of key spots where they lose control, they're in a tailspin, but then they pull out of it and there's this really nice key change that steps up a whole step into a new statement of this faster flying theme ostinato. Toothless opens the wings, Hiccup engages his steering mechanism, boom, big, beautiful, singing, main flying theme. really does sound like the two of them getting put together. I see the temptation to now call them Toothless's theme and Hiccup's theme, but I don't think Powell thought of it that way. I think he thought of it as like the elemental force of what flying means getting put together with this animal potency or, you know, dealer's choice. Make up your own emotions for these things getting put together. But the point is that you've heard them introduced and explored and played with before, and now they're getting full voice. All right, I'm glad we got to listen to that for a while. Now the listener, whether they're a veteran dragon trainer or are coming to this score for the first time, has a taste of the glorious moment, the highlight, really, the centerpiece of the score. And there are other highlights, and we'll go through all of it, but now we've gotten it in our ears and gotten a sense of the landscape there. Now I want to start asking some of my questions about this. Okay, okay. You said it's dealer's choice, but I think it is fair and worthwhile to ask what things mean. That moment when Toothless stares him down and has the power to kill him and then doesn't. When the threat of Toothless, the untamed Toothless, mm -hmm. was represented by that kind of scary, witchy, folk demons kind of sound of that gadulka. That seemed like such an important introduction to who Toothless was. Mm -hmm. It suggested to me, at least at first, that the dragon comes from some wildness, some natural truth that needs to be confronted, and that wildness is this non-orchestral stuff. And if you are facing it and confronting it and being confronted by it, you are facing this other sound. I really hooked on to that as, oh, what are we going to make of that? How are we going to reconcile that? I look forward to finding out. And then I didn't entirely find out. In the taming and training and bonding with Toothless, I wanted to know what it meant hmm. because that's the meaning of the whole story. It's a father misunderstanding a son and a community misunderstanding dragons and then the son makes a relationship with dragons. What What is that emotionally? What is the thing that this means? And which side of which line do these folk instruments fall on? They're the sound of Viking tradition, but they're also the sound of this other that Hiccup meets out in the wilderness. What is he meeting in himself or in the world when he meets that? I think it's fair to say that Powell has a more intellectual and thematic relationship with the melodies and the harmonies, the underlying musical content of his writing, than he does with the instrumentation. I think it's more important that that is this spookified, exotified version of the flying theme ostinato 
than it is that it's any given ethnic instrument. I think it conveys the sense of kind of all-purpose specificity, paradoxically, that attaches... What what does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) I'm interested to know what the paradox means to you. I'm skeptical about the idea that there is such a thing as all-purpose specificity. I want there to be better than that. It's an unusual sound. It's an extra hook for your memory. It's an extra way that it's riveted to your attention. At least for me, that's how I felt it, that I didn't feel like I needed an explanation around their use. I was happy to just kind of have them be landmarks for my ears to think, oh, I'm I'm here. I'm in this world. This movie has these sounds. I mean, look, Andy, you uh, you you like this score, right? I mean, it's it's pretty good, <laughs> don't you think? It is. It really is, and it wormed into my head over the time I've spent with it. Oh, it's really in my head, yeah. I heard an anecdote. It might be in those liner notes where Powell said that when he first demoed one of these themes for Jeffrey Katzenberg, the head of DreamWorks Animation, he said, "Ah, eh, it's sort of pretty, but it just meanders. It doesn't. It's not quite right." you know, shape it up. I think it was the love theme. That's right. It's the love theme, which we haven't talked about yet. And then he just played it for him again at the next meeting. And he said at the second meeting, he said, well, it's getting better. And then he played it a third time without changing it. And he said, yeah, now you've got it. (laughs) And I identify with that. That's how a lot of this music felt to me. It just, it worked its way into my sense of what needed to be so. And that these melodies, oh, those melodies are good. And now, yeah, I'm there with it. They're very touching. I'm on board. He pulled that trick with the encouragement of the directors. They told him, no, no, just play it again. Just, Just give him another chance at it. And he came around to it. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I think all of these melodies, they strike a really nice balance between accessibility and complexity to my ears. My first impression of them was that they were poppy. Yeah, they are. They reminded me actually of our 1995 episode Uh where we listened to a lot of, you know, Pocahontas by Alan Menken and then a bunch of scores by Horner. I thought, oh, this could fit right in with that, that kind of sweeping, Broadway-inspired emotional space. And they do bring that kind of sweep to this movie, and that, in the year 2010, is kind of a special thing. It's not to be taken for granted the way it was in 1995. Yeah, they're committed to, with that level of conviction you commit to a song, that gives them a real force. Yeah, I mean, they use the kind of the pop, chords you know heavy reliance on four and six and i I, want to hear it for five yeah (laughs) and let's not forget one baby (laughs) he sure doesn't forget one all of these tunes sound like they're not far from folk music that they're not far from this fantastical oldie timey setting they're built out of these traditional chords that all of these old traditional songs would have been built on. I absolutely hear what you mean about it being reminiscent of that 95 Horner kind of a sound. This really straight ahead orchestral application of big old singy tunes. But maybe you'll think this is perverse, but a name that I wanted to put in the same sentence here that I thought of just from my experience of studying this score the commitment to detail in the orchestration and to working with these themes, expressing them fully for this storytelling purpose, I had a bit of a Roja feeling from it. Hmm. 
I'll take that. Hmm. That's good enough. You know, I did think Roja at one point where I don't think he's quoting Ben-Hur, but he does a religioso effect that is entirely in the manner and even has the motif from Ben-Hur. Hiccup is showing his way with the animals that no one else has, Mm -hmm. and he's sort of summoning the dragons out of their cages. And there are these flowing parallel major chords to give that religious effect. And then this da-da-da-da, that's exactly the Jesus music (laughs) from Ben-Hur. Good point. I don't want to make too much about the musical parallel, but I just sort of got a similar sense of the professionalism of committing to this big orchestral texture. And I got that specifically from the experience of listening to this music and following along with it in the score. And uh, maybe now is a good time to talk about what score it was that I was following along in. Okay. There have been times that we've had access to the scores Mm -hmm. in the past, but it's usually sort of contraband that uh, we are looking at bad scans of things. But in this case, we have a beautiful, legitimate, published edition of the score, which is such an incredible luxury. And yeah, it's an experience I've never had before of sitting with a proper book in my lap while a movie goes by. It's quite a proper book. It is. There it is. This book is published by Omni Music Oh, that was the sound of the book. Yeah, <laughs> because a movie score is a lot of music. It's a lot of music. This is a 384-page book. Yeah, we have these courtesy of the publisher Omni Music Publishing. The guy who runs this company has been a supporter of the show. He's a Patreon supporter. And when he first got in touch with us, he said, let me know when you do one of my scores. And when this one came around, we said, all right, we're going to do one that you publish. And he kindly sent us copies of it. And it is just a beautiful thing. Our our part is to tell you guys that. And it, very glad to. It's awesome. It's so cool to have a whole movie score in your hands. It's terrific. It's a beautiful, big volume. It's typeset very meticulously, very easy to read. It's printed in concert pitch, which I want to call out as being obviously what (laughs) scores should be written in. You're going to get a lot of angry letters from trumpeters. Am I? No, you're probably not. Look, trumpeters, you can have your part transposed however you like. But when it's the full score, it's crazy to me that it's like the standard is to have every single crazy transposition duplicated in the full score when the point of the full score is to be able to see how all the notes fit together. And People who don't commonly read orchestral scores probably don't even know what you're referring to. I remember when I first hit this as a teenager, starting to look into how orchestral music worked. The first one I took home and sat at the piano with, and I was like, wait a minute, I can't even just play these <laughs> notes. I have to, oh my God, be flat to see yeah. this. Okay. Right, but these notes you can just play, which is like the purpose of them being all collected on the same piece of paper so that you can see them all together and see how they go together. It's certainly much more study friendly. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I think it's intended for. And to that end, the publisher that we spoke to, thank you, Tim, he actually had a long conversation with John Powell to get a sense of the intention of things. And he has prefaced the score with his own analysis of all of the different themes. He shows you what all the themes are. And then there is a cue by cue analysis where he describes in detail what material is happening in each cue of the score. And it's all very thoughtfully done. And it also, it's bound nicely. It lays flat on your desk. Yeah, it's got a cool cover design. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. My very sincere promotion of this product is... 
I have been able to see movie score materials for many years now since the black market of people passing each other scans that they shouldn't have sort of took off on the internet. Oh, I finally got to see some things, but it is just different. It becomes more a part of your viewing experience to have a book that you are holding instead of sort of referring to some thing you're squinting at. Right. And this is all legitimately sourced and proper and nothing, nothing's called duggerous about it. Like I said, he spoke to the composer and got it all down the way that it should be. Yeah. The work he did in making this product finally come into existence after decades of being desirable but non-existent was getting through all of the red tape of the rights of, you know, how to get such a thing printed legally god bless him for doing that and thank you so much for sending copies to us and what he has offered is a special settling the score discount that we are happy to tell you you can get ten dollars off until the end of march if you're listening to this when this actually came out in december 2023 for the next three months if you go to omnimusicpublishing.com and at checkout use the code dragon discount 75 that's all one word and all caps dragon discount then seven five and you'll get ten dollars off so check it out because like i said tim spoke to john powell about the themes in this movie and then wrote this analysis based on that conversation we can claim with a certain amount of authority what the composer's names for these things were and it's a defining characteristic of this score that there are all of these themes so it's important for us to hear them i think even though, what do you think, Andy? Like, what's the listener really supposed to do with all of these themes? There's so many of them. Yeah, that was the big question for me. Is there an artistic strategy behind this that's in service of the audience, or is it just what he trusts as a robust way to make a lot of melodic music? I don't know. All right, so we've got to listen to all of these things, but, you know, I think it'll be interesting as all these bits of the movie go by to think about, you know, like how much representation are these themes doing? Some, certainly some along the way, but it's approaching it nebulously, and I think it's achieving something more <laughs> nebulous than just representation. Yeah, there's no question. They're all about things in the movie that he saw and thought, I'm going to attach some musical feeling and sound to that. But it doesn't feel like they take the whole of the movie and divvy it up, you know, into fifths and then assign five themes. Like, there's a whole bundle of themes kind of collected around maybe the same sort of concept. Yeah, and they overlap, right? It's not a clean division between what kind of things in the movie gets what music. All right, so where do we start? Well, according to this analysis here in this book, there are several Viking themes that correspond to different aspects of the Viking personality and culture. And I did hear them as kind of forming a little solar system in themselves. These themes Mm -hmm. connect to each other and are in each other's vicinity a lot. At least two of them I hear as kind of partnered. Which two? Well, there's this theme that I thought of as the jig theme because it's got this Mm -hmm. six, eight rhythm and it has some suggestions of Scottish folk music. Sure. John, do you remember some years ago we did an episode and I referred to some rhythm as a scotch snap rhythm and in the editing you were like, that's just unnecessary technical language. It's just going to confuse people and, and you convinced me to take it out. 
Okay. <laughs> do you what, remember that? What, what episode do you think that might have been? I don't know. I have to think back which of our scores had a Scotch snap in it. Well, a Scotch snap refers to the rhythm where there is a short note, usually a, like a 16th, followed by a long note to fill out the rest of the beat. Da-da. Instead of what's a natural rhythm in many idioms is dun da dun da dun da da Long, short, long, short. Long, short, long, short, long is just kind of the natural swinging thing to do. Mm-hmm. But the short, long, short, long, short, long, da-da, 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 that has particular Scottish associations, and it is referred to as the Scotch snap in some musical talk. And he's got that in this theme, and it does, to my ear, immediately evoke folk dance. Especially because I think a part of this melody that goes hand in hand with that scotch snap feeling of like, where's the emphasis? Is the emphasis on the first note because it's the first note? Or is it on the second note because that's the long note? There's this little ambiguity of emphasis that gives it that tripping, that dancing feeling like you're leaning forward and catching your balance. And there's a similar effect with the melody where the short note at the beginning of the melody, da-dum-dum, is the seven and then it goes up to the one on the long half of the scotch snap meter yeah when you say seven is another notable thing about this it's a flat it's a flat seven. seven yeah it's a seven that's a full step below the root the one rather than a right. half step if you played a major scale the seven is just any just a half step below the root that's called a leading tone the leading tone because it leads right up into it whereas this is a folksier sound. It's a modal sound. Right. It's sort of characteristic of Dorian mode. Is that too technical? Do I need to take that out, John? No, they can handle it. <laughs> they can handle it. I'm so sorry I, I deprived everybody of this <laughs> Scotch <laughs> snap discussion from ages from ago. From I don't remember when. This tune really leans on that flat seven as the downbeat, as the first beat of many bars. Right. So both rhythmically and modally, we would say, it is a strong folk presence. It's the Scottish sure. sound. It's the sense of where we are. It's so Scottish that he plays it on the Ukrainian Sopilka. <laughs> All right. This is, this is what I'm saying to some degree about these novel instruments. Yeah. They are there to convey some sense of ethnicity, but they are also not. They also <laughs> yeah. are just things out of his sample library that he thought, oh, maybe I'll throw that in there, and then we'll hire a real one to come record this, it seems to me. I mean, that's an important element of this score. It is big-time, full Hollywood orchestra that has been seasoned with, yeah, a grab bag of exotic instruments. Exotic from the point of view of the traditional European symphony orchestra and taken from many different cultures. I mentioned the gadulka from Bulgaria. There's the sopilka, which is a Ukrainian, like, penny whistle kind of flute that gets used a lot. There's an esraj, which is a different kind of traditional string instrument from India. Then there are, you know, Celtic, Scottish signifiers like bagpipes. And war pipes. 
more pipes I had to look up, but that apparently is an Irish variant of the bagpipes. Yeah, well, he's definitely uh, taking with both hands from any kind of northern European traditions that he wants, which is it's, which is exactly what the Vikings did. So I guess that's <laughs> fair enough. I don't know how many Indian instruments they managed to get in their collection, but the Scottish is the part that is at least directly relatable to the accents the actors have in this and the implication, which is true in the Crested Cowell books, that this takes place in the Hebrides or in some sort of mythological Scottish landscape. Yeah, that's right. And it is true in history that there was a lot of cross-pollination between Vikings and Celtic peoples. Right. So there is obviously a kind of scene-setting function that this stuff serves. Where are we in time and space? We're in a fantasy of the past, but it has something to do with Scotland, and it has something to do with a sense of folk. That I understand, but the placement of these elements seems like it carries more meaning than just that, because they're not consistently part of the ensemble. They're used for special Mm. coloration in various moments. Coloration, I mean, the metaphor that kept occurring to me about the usage of these things is that the Hollywood film orchestra sound that this is clearly written in with a full embrace of what a big film orchestra sounds like, that's like you're mixing a big bucket of epoxy. And then if you if you just add a tiny, tiny little eighth of a teaspoon full of pigment, and mix it in, then it suddenly changes the color of the whole mixture. And that's what these extra orchestral elements kept feeling like to me. It was continually remarkable to me how just a little touch of these non-orchestral elements gave you a different sense, like really colored the whole mixture. Like, you know, here's this melody on a regular orchestral flute. And here it is on the Sopilka, the Ukrainian folk flute. You know, even if the rest of the orchestration is kind of the same, it immediately summons this other feeling to what you're listening to. And he's very sensitive to how to do that. You know, the score is full of drum rolls and whooshes, as any score like this might be. Here's a drum roll whoosh that's actually right at the beginning of that test drive cue that has a hammered dulcimer mixed into it. And just in this one upbeat, because of that dulcimer, it's coloring the whole sound. It sounds like a special thing is happening. It's not just a drum roll whoosh, you know, it's a specified sound. How do you feel about the sort of drum group? We've got the dole, I think is pronounced, D-H-O-L, uh-huh. which is an Indian drum. Sure. And the brequeta, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's a Ghanaian drum. Ooh. And lots of other drums as well. How do you feel about that element in here? Does it feel like it's the same drums that are in every score, or does it have character to you? I think it has character to me. I think it's well chosen. I saw him in an interview saying, we've gotten to this moment where a lot of scoring is powerful drums and then a not very interesting melody just sort of rides on top of that but the drums are doing all of the emotional work and he doesn't want to do that he's sort of striving to get away from that we should say powell was one of the main go-to guys for dreamworks animation he's sort of a specialist expert at the highly melodic traditionally orchestral rich and lively score for animated movies he prefers it 
I saw him say that, you know, a live action movie, they don't usually want you to write a melody. And in an animated movie, they do want you to write melodies. And of course, he wants to do that. Another of his big calling cards in his credits are the scores to the Bourne movies, which I really like. Right. Well, that's the other side because those are sort of non-melodic. But But um, I kind of always thought of his technique with those, which I really enjoyed, as being like a bunch of repeated micro melodies. He sets up a repeating figure in the strings. And if you do it enough times, it's action, but it's these small melodic fragments. His career story is that he was like an assistant to Hans Zimmer, who Zimmer brought into his own by giving him jobs that came his way until he was independent. But he basically came out of the Zimmer uh, factory workshop. The Zimmer factory that works exactly like that, where there are sub-composers who eventually get given enough things to do that they get to be revealed as full composers themselves. Right. I hear him as someone who sort of learned this craft under Zimmer, but just has more traditional and more to my taste tastes. It's like he's doing what Zimmer would have done, except with more classical interest in the textures he creates. He doesn't want to create monoliths. Mm -hmm. He seems to have come out of the culture that I feel frustrated has taken over so much scoring, but to very consciously want to do better than that, Mm -hmm. want to keep it in its proper place. And in this score... Though I could imagine a version of this score where fewer of the cues have drum loops going behind them, these drum loops don't really ever detract. They feel balanced underneath what really matters, which is everything else. But anyway, the second theme that kind of is the twin of that jig theme Mm -hmm. is what the bass starts doing immediately. In the Omniscore, this is described as a warring Vikings theme, right? Yeah, that's right. He says that this is about the belligerent and masculine character of the Vikings. It's also based on rising five flat seven one. That shape da 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 is in a lot of these themes. It's in both of those themes. Da 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 da. da. Together they do create kind of a world in the mindset of the score that is all this activity that we see immediately. What does Stoics do? What do the other Vikings do? What does everyone other than Hiccup do? They do this stuff. Parents believe a hideous name will frighten off gnomes and trolls. Like our charming Viking demeanor wouldn't do that. It is sort of about what everyone other than Hiccup does. I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, it often is played in this big bombastic setting for, like, the Viking ships setting off on their quest to find the dragon's nest. I really love how he's got the male chorus in there going, ho-ha, but you can sing along with the ho-ha's if you're reading in the score. Doesn't it feel like you're being let in on a weird secret to know that when you hear them doing that, they are yes. in fact just saying ho-ha? Yes, it does. Because you want to believe that like what they're saying can only be spelled in runes, <laughs> but no. It's actually meaningless grunting. (laughs) You're right. It does feel like you're getting to look behind the curtain to see the actual letters spelling out ho and ha and hmm and ooh. 
So this theme definitely, you know, feels at home in this big bombastic style. But then, you know, there are places where you get like a sad version of it. Like here it is on the Esraj. For the low point for Hiccup, when his father says, you're not my son, we hear the same melody, sort of high and sad because of, you know, how poignantly cutting it is for this non-Hiccup sentiment to be spelled out at Hiccup in that way. Astrid gets this a bunch of times. That's right. Like when she's taking the dragon training really seriously. This time, this time, for sure. There is kind of a secondary variant dogleg off of this theme that is sort of like the version of that that can accompany Hiccup. Hmm. It's just slightly different. Dun, 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 dun. There's so many themes. There are so many themes, John. And I think the key thing about themes, as you have mentioned, is that their names or their official functions are irrelevant compared to whatever they actually do for the audience. And all they can do for the audience is be dots that get connected. You hear a theme at one point, and you hear a theme at another point, and now you know that those two points have something in common. Right. What do they have in common? It's not clear to me that John Powell made a choice about what these themes were bringing with them. It seems like a sort of an intuitive process was used, and that's great. That's fine. I like that. But it also means like every single thing that you've mentioned as a probable meaning for a theme, I could have proposed a counterexample for why it can't necessarily mean that, because why is it here? Yeah, I agree. It is intuitive. He's using them intuitively, whichever one he grabs onto first. You know, classic example of this that we went over when it came across our desk is in Star Wars when the princess theme is used for a sequence that is not about the princess. John Williams said, well, it's just the one that had the right contour for that moment. There's a pretty close analog of that in this score. Another of these themes that gets introduced in this opening sequence is, you know, maybe it's the love theme. It's the theme about Astrid, the girl who he has a crush on and who winds up becoming sort of a co-conspirator with him about Toothless. It's introduced in this overtly referential shtick moment of she's in slow motion walking away from a cool looking explosion and he's goggling at her with slack jawed puppy love is meant to be like, oh, here comes the hot chick. Visually, it looks like it's meant to be that. The music, I don't think, can be here comes the hot chick, right? No, it's not. The music is actually quite sincere and lovely. I mean, this is potentially exhibit A for my case about how you have to watch this movie multiple times until the music does what it's supposed to do. Until I knew this tune, this is a very strange moment. This is a very (laughs) strange moment. Because if what the moment is selling is a joke about, you know, cool guys don't look at explosions and, oh, I'm such a dork, I have such a crush on the hot chick, neither of those things is properly accompanied by a sweeping love theme. Even the sarcastic version of it, the sarcastic thing you'd play wouldn't be this tune. The tune is actually a sincere expression of our and his love for the character Astrid that we will have developed after we've seen the movie a few times. And it's just kind of funny that the first time we see her in the movie is like this, but we, the fans, 
known better than to be distracted by the momentary joke, I think. That's how it played for me, having gotten used to it. I can see what you mean by that. This theme doesn't appear nearly as much as many of the others. It's really marquee moment comes when she finally gets up on Toothless and takes a romantic flight with him. The title of the cue is Romantic Flight. In that case, it's played on this really soupy, schmaltzy, just a regular violin, but it's played with so much reverb and pathos in the performance that you almost think, oh wait, is this also some bizarre ethnic string instrument? No, this is just a regular violin. Are you saying soupy and schmaltzy because that's how it strikes you, or did you get that from a professional violinist who said that? Because... (laughs) I feel like it's immediately clear to me that, oh, we've entered a realm of feeling. Oh, I didn't mean it to be derogatory, Soupy and Schmaltzy. I just mean that the performance has a lot of vibrato and a lot of scoops and, you know, heartstring yanking. It's, it's Schmaltzy. Come on. In my copy of the score, it's got all those little grace notes written into it. Yeah. You know, another score I wanted to mention in reference to this score that we have done is Titanic. Ah, uh, of course. Because... Well, do you remember when we talked about Titanic, I said, gosh, I don't like how much this became a standard application. Let's just do that thing where there's some kind of Celtic-y stuff and that shows that someone is having some real feelings because that's what we need. And in fact, I saw, did you see, I forget if it was in the liner notes. Yeah, it is. That's why, that's why I said because. Katzenberg said at one point, can't we just throw some Enya at it? And it's not so much that he specifically said it as what it reveals that to him, that's just one of the fallbacks. Yeah. We want them to feel something. So it should probably go like, yeah, <laughs> that's what we need, right? You know, push the Celtic button. But I think this theme, though it has some of those nuances in the detailing, the theme itself is not one of those. It feels more to me, like I said, like an Alan Menken moment. It feels like the sequence in Aladdin, but unlike the sequence in Aladdin, the characters aren't the voice. They are not the ones singing it. It's kind of being done to them. They're caught up in it. Mm. As the characters are caught up in the music through the whole movie, and this is a sequence where that rang true for me even the first time. They're on a dragon flight looking out at the world and that's romantic and there's music that goes along with that i immediately knew what to do with that this sequence really works for me and seems like it avoids the pitfall of being too schmaltzy or too Enya or any of those things. So that's, I was just surprised to hear you of all the things in the movie to start saying slightly <laughs> negative words about this. I apologize. You are right to call me out on it. I didn't mean to have a negative connotation to it. I also think it's sincere and lovely. And I'm glad to hear you. I'm glad that it connected with you. You only hear it a few times. You hear it this flight sequence you hear another time where they're having a conversation a little later and then the thing that made me think of the unexpected appearance of Leia's theme in Star Wars is that at the very end of the movie the like the punchline happy ending haha see now everything's great and everybody loves dragons he opens the door to this heart-stirring vista and is this theme And, you know, Astrid's not on the screen at this point. It's not a romantic feeling, but it's a feeling of, you know, love. It's a feeling of warm emotions and contentment. And furthermore, I suspect that he may have also been motivated to put this theme there 
rather than a flying theme or a dragon theme or something like that, because this comes immediately on the heels of the big, big finale where we've heard all of those themes a lot. And so, like, this is a theme we haven't heard in a little while. Certainly not heard played this forcefully. And it works. It really works for me. Yes. are scaring me. My two-sided response to this Mm -hmm. is that it does really work, and once I know the album and know that that's the last track, I mean the album that the movie is, once I know to expect this when he opens the door, it feels really good. But the other side of it is he has it available to him because a lot of these themes occupy similar territory in terms of their dramatic import. Mm. We've had several themes already that are the themes of emotional wholeness and homecoming and goodness for our protagonist. And there are at least two others that convey that same thing. Right? Yeah, there's this one. which Tim has called here, based on his conversation with John Powell, the Hiccup's fate theme, or Hiccup realizing his ambition, something like that. It's played in sequences where he is motivating himself forward. You know, right. He's doing some work that he's building his future. So I understand that association. Yeah. Uh, okay, is there only one more? Maybe there are five more? There's another hero theme. Have you had enough hero themes? No, there's another <laughs> hero theme. The one that Powell thought of apparently as the Vikings theme, at least when he first composed it, but its use in the movie ends up being more kind of the heroics of the team. Oh, right, this one. That particular theme, I agree, I don't think that's a Viking theme. I think that's more Hiccup's theme than the flying theme, which is sometimes called Hiccup's theme by people. In my visit to fan school, I have seen pretty much every theme in this movie called Hiccup's Theme by at least someone. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So this theme that has the Lydian motion in it, that raised fourth in it. I need to make my mark. Oh, you made plenty of marks. All in the wrong places. Please, two minutes. I'll kill a dragon. My life will get infinitely better. I might even get a date. I kind of feel like this is most often tied to optimistic ambition because, yeah, we first hear it when Hiccup's talking about how he wants to be and relative to how other people want him to be. When he is getting ready to take his final test in the dragon training ring, there's this august brass version of it. I have to try. Astrid, if something goes wrong, just make sure they don't find Toothless. I will. Just promise me it won't go wrong. It's time, Hiccup. Knock him dead. It's about him gathering himself together. There's a snippet of it at the moment when they're fighting the big boss dragon and Toothless fires the winning blow against the dragon. And then, yeah, it's perhaps most visible at this moment when the kids all fly in to help in the battle. All right, and theme rundown, there's kind of one other big theme, right? I think we've gotten almost everything. I think so. I think so. And that's the dragon theme or the evil dragon theme. The dragons are scary theme, something like that. (laughs) 
first time you hear it in the opening sequence. Right. While we are watching the dragons, vicious beasts besetting the town, stealing the livestock, burning the buildings. This is like a transition into more serious stakes at the beginning. You know, it has this congenial attitude off the bat, but then this music starts and, you know, it's like, oh, here's the real problem. Yes, although, as usual, Hiccup is undercutting it by, over these higher stakes, talking about how he's more likely to get a girlfriend if he kills this dragon or that dragon. Cuts against him. Broncos are tough. Taking down one of those would definitely get me a girlfriend. But yes, just musically speaking, these are the stakes. There are scary forces in this world. The scary forces. And certainly it gets pinned to the big scary, big boss force. This theme gets big, powerful statements during the final battle. Enormous statements of this evil dragon theme for this enormous evil dragon. Although this theme also goes through something of a transmogrification because as the kids are fighting the big dragon and Toothless is flying all around it and we're cheering them on, there's like a major version of it. seems to be embracing like these beasts we can tame them to our side we can ally ourselves with them in fact you hear that major version of the dragon theme in the opening sequence it's the last thing you hear before hiccup shoots down toothless it has already shown that it can take on that major form and okay here's where i'm going to start asking my leading questions, my needling questions. All right, I can take it. What are dragons to us? And what music should convey that? Because I do find it confusing. Even after watching the movie many times, it seems to me like a kind of cheat in the story that the villain turns out to be just a bigger dragon. (laughs) When the message all along has been, don't just treat dragons as enemies, except for this one that we just showed you for the first time, that one you have to explode. It seems like just a displacement, and the fact that this theme doesn't know what it means to me is a problem. At the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to the idea that dragons are these enemies with this music. But the ultimate prize is the dragon no one's ever seen. We call it the Night Fury! Get down! And we don't hear the music for a while, and the plot of the movie is about befriending dragons and seeing beyond that kind of prejudice and realizing that a dragon is your spirit animal and represents something about Hiccup coming into his fullest self and flying. Everything we know about you guys is wrong. And then, kind of out of story necessity, there turns out to be a giant monster dragon at the end who does indeed get this theme. What is that? Even though we know better than this theme? I, I don't know. I got lost at the end, and I do feel like even as someone who has been converted to a fan of the score and of the movie, the ending feels a little artificial and video gamey, and I think that some musical blame can be placed. I don't think the music really justifies this final battle as having any thematic resonance. It, if anything, seems like it's trying to evade pinning it to anything because it, it doesn't have a proper place in the story. Talk me out of that. No, I think that's fair. Like that big monster dragon, 
it's just a ex machina. It's monstro ex machina, yeah. right? It's, it's not. Ma- <laughs> I was about to say, it's not a Deus ex machina. It was the opposite. It's so that they can blow something up because one must, right? The thing about these animated movies is they are not written by one person with a vision. They are this project with a room of writers who does story work until they are done. And in this case, especially, it's an adaptation of a book that in story terms, it is not an adaptation of. They bought this property in the, you know, post-Potter era. Yeah, they totally wrote a whole new story and changed everything around, just kept the names. Yeah, and it had been through two prior iterations that I guess Katzenberg or someone thought were not headed in the right direction until these guys came on board. Yeah, I saw that as this project was going through development hell, that one of the important intended elements of the logline was that, you know, it should be like a fantasy thing with a Harry Potter tone. And I thought, this does not have a Harry Potter tone. At this time, you, you... You couldn't get anything made without somebody telling somebody that had a Harry Potter tone. Well, I think it does in the biggest sense that what does it appeal to for kids? You know, they're not going to wizard school. They're going to dragon school. But they are Mm -hmm. entering the world. The misfit kid finds his place in the world. Yeah, all right. I guess that. In a fantasy world. In a world where... See, this is the difference between the E.T. model that I grew up with and the Harry Potter model. In the E.T. model... You live in our world, and then you have some magic bean in your bedroom that, like, you commune. Did you say magic bean, like Jack and the Beanstalk? That's what I said, yeah. Or, okay, I just wasn't sure if you said that, or magic being. Well, I should have said that. You have a, you know, a wardrobe (laughs) in your room that gives you special access to Wonderland, Neverland, uh, E.T., you know, That's your secret buddy. You carry around inside of you the magic. In the Potter model, yes, you're a wizard, Harry, but once you get named as a wizard, you go to wizard world, and now you are actually, like, getting on-the-job training into an entire world of magic. What he takes for granted at the beginning of the movie, this wisecracking kid, is like, yeah, what can I say? I live in a world with dragons, huh? Hmm? You see, most places have mice or mosquitoes. We have that to me is a Harry Potter thing. Like, they introduce us to the world being amazing at the beginning, but the character still needs to be somehow brought into alignment with it. And it's also about being brought into alignment with his father's expectations, with you know his adult role. But all of these things, I don't know how to map them onto this confrontation at the end, which is scored really spectacularly in terms of doing the tricks from Star Wars and doing the tricks from everyone he has the whole modern orchestral scoring history down you can tell and he does all of the tricks but they are in service of something with no particular resonance to me i saw the same thing it needed to have a kind of a harry potter feel And they said it needed to be a father-son story. I think that was one of the things that identified this project, even as they kind of ground through different iterations of the story. It was going to be about a father-son relationship. That father-son relationship is not directly addressed by the score, it seems to me. In part because, as we've been saying so many times, these themes are elusive in their reference. 
I don't think any of them really attaches to Hiccup and Stoic's relationship. No, they don't. Like, there are a couple scenes between them with the lovely Roger Deacon's lighting, candle lighting, where they're sitting together in a room and talking, and, oh, they're not really communicating eye to eye, and they've still got secrets. With no music. Nothing happens on this island without me hearing about it. Oh? So, let's talk about that dragon. Oh, God. Dad, I'm so sorry. I, I, I was That's going to not tell you. I just what all of this musicality is there to buoy up for us. And so at the pivot at the end, when Stoic finally says, I'm proud to call you my son, because he has seen the error of his ways. I'm proud to call you my son. Thanks, Dad. In a more traditionally dramaturgically wedded score, I would at this moment expect that the musical story of the father-son conflict that, boy, on script terms would seem to be the essential story of this movie, that some kind of musical storytelling about that is here reaching its fruition. And that's not really how that moment plays to me. Is it how it plays to you? I mean, it kind of is how it plays to me. And that's, I think, down to this thematic versatility and imprecise interchangeability that we were talking about because the Stoic dives into the water to rescue Toothless from being chained up. And then in return, Toothless, once he's free of the chains, flies up out of the water and takes Stoic with him to sort of reciprocate being saved. As soon as he jumps up out of the water, then there's a big statement of his flying theme for that. And then that, you know, somewhat more meaty and harmonically adventurous B section of the flying theme plays under this scene of reconciliation. I'm sorry. For, for everything. Yeah, me too. And then you after he says, I'm proud to call you my or son, Vikings. and Hiccup takes off on Toothless again to go fight the big boss dragon. I'm proud to call you my son. You know, there's a bunch of different shots of the other kids riding on their own dragons. There's some action. I can imagine a spotting of this scene in which we play the big emotional climax right on the beat, right on the moment when his father says he's proud of him. And then we move on to other stuff, like because the visual looks like it's moved on to the next phase of the battle in the 16 bars following when Gerard Butler says that. But instead of moving on, the music now makes an even bigger, louder, more powerful statement of the big flying theme. which suggested to me that the ineffable energies that it had been gathering since the beginning of the movie, back from when this contour was about the mystery of this strange animal, the uncertainty that Hiccup had about how to interact with him, through his exploration and the deepening relationship that they had together and learning to fly together, All of those feelings that the theme never really felt like it had to be stuck permanently to any of them was always kind of free to express this underlying potency and love and togetherness. Any of these things that you want to read into the movie, like I said, Dealer's Choice, 
Now in this moment, it turns out that also this theme then gets to express the really tear-jerky moment where your father says he's proud of you. That also gets to be an expression of the same underlying energy. And we exult in that reconciliation with the same energy of learning to fly and sitting on a dragon with your arms in the air. So you hear that as sort of a new application of the emotion there. I heard it, uh, even now, after several watchings, I hear it as Hiccup's heroism is now visible to his father, the heroism that we have been watching for all this time. That too, but I do feel like it was a conscious decision on Powell's part to let that theme keep playing after the moment, to call you my son. after the line, and Thanks, kind guys. of let that line ring in our heads as his big main flying thing plays. Could have moved on to other stuff that the picture was calling for there. Yeah, well, that's true throughout all three movies in action sequences. Powell chooses in favor of the impact of the melodies over Mickey Mousing is a dismissive way to say it, but over articulating the structure of the action sequence. Mm -hmm. He looks for an articulation that allows the melodies to speak their messages. And I can sort of see him looking for clever ways to get both done, which is really satisfying when he pulls it off. The first time I watched the ending of this movie, I found the action sequence, I mean, it's like 10 minutes of fighting this big dragon. I was a little at sea in it, like, well, now, now some stuff, now they're doing that. He just fell from there, and then he, this is a lot of this. There. Once I knew the melodies, I felt like now it's demarcated by a series of melodic experiences, but the actual action that the animators were planning out about what matters, what's the turning point in this action, Powell was, I felt like, making a respectful effort to serve, but not at the expense of his musical experience. That ultimately is more satisfying, but it took some training to get there. I guess that is how to train your Andy. Okay, but John, there's a problem with this movie. I have to say there's a problem with this movie, which is that they just ask us to kind of blind ourselves for the entire sequence where Hiccup is getting better and better at being a dragon whisperer and getting the dragons to do what he wants because he understands them. Everyone is seeing him do this and seeing him show that the dragons are harmless if you tickle them under the chin or if you you know treat them like a big cat, they'll act like a big cat. And yet everyone is somehow twisting it in their heads into parsing that as he just got really good at fighting them, which is artificial. No one would react to what they're seeing by thinking that. But somehow... I mean, listen, deep-seated tradition can act in mysterious ways on humans, you know, it can warp your worldview in ways that maybe it's uh, worth commenting upon. Hmm. So you think that that blindness... No, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. They act like he's fighting they them. They say, oh, Hiccup got so good at fighting them, even though right. he they is, clearly see that he's not fighting that them. That he is not fighting them. And then at the turning point scene when Stoic witnesses this, he's like aghast. Wait, what he's doing isn't fighting. It is some peaceful thing that I cannot tolerate because I have so much built up hate in my heart, which is not really natural. It's only good news. If he takes his job seriously at protecting them from these dragons, the fact that they are incredibly easily pacified beasts is only good news. Yeah, but uh, 
I mean, I was kind of half joking when I said that before, but I think there's actually something to it. Maybe it uh, would not be fun to get into talking about how it is a real problem in the real world that people uh, prefer hating things than understanding how you don't have to hate them. No, uh, we don't need to go to a place where it's not fun. Absolutely. That's a valid message that people prefer hating things because it's some kind of emotionally comfortable place for them. The world makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. And they don't want to confront a challenge to the way things make sense to them. Exactly. Because that's uncomfortable, even if on the other side of it is good. Exactly. But yes, I take your point that certain elements of this plot feel like they were duct taped together by committee and you can feel it creaking under this weight. I don't deny that. Sure. And my point in bringing this up is, I think your point is a good one. Yes. Oh, there is a human psychology to which this could correspond. And I dare say a giant monster coming out from behind a cliff face at the end of the movie who turns out to be the real problem all along cheap though that is a mythic resonance could have been found Hmm. for that it doesn't seem like an attempt was made to make the arc of this story resonant on its own terms it didn't seem to me like the score was trying to you know i've said in other conversations i remember saying it at length about the godfather but i've said it in a lot of these that music has this wonderful power to sort the material to map out the conceptual spaces that are at work in the myth-making, in the deep, meaningful content of a movie, I pretty easily found myself thinking, well, what should the themes have been for a movie about this? And it was only after I gave up on that and just let the themes that were actually there wash over me that I found a whole other way of seeing it that was, to my mind, sort of detached from what was going on. I mean, people talk about this as a classic hero's journey, but it didn't feel like most of that journey was musically told. It was instead kind of a musical journey into, yeah, that flying theme. And what is that flying theme? Like, the thing this reminded me of from our past was uh, when I attempted to close read the chords in the John Barry flying theme. Hmm. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Out of Africa. Out of Africa. Which was a kind of... uh, melancholy retrospective flying theme about the waves of memory and this perfect moment in the past and it draws a tear by putting around those chords that's not what these chords mean but to me it's kind of a similar resting place like a little chord circle that all the currents in the movie lead you to that or when we talked about titanic like what does that little chord circle mean so i did spend some time thinking about what is it telling me is the meaning of all this And the chord circle in this one is... Are you going to play it on the piano? Oh, no, you don't have to, because in the last cue of the movie, he plays it on the piano. (laughs) He plays it on the piano. Yeah, I mean, it's 6, 4, 5, 1, sure. Yeah, 6, 4, 5, 1. I watched three of these movies, and it really felt like the whole thing was a journey in that loop. Does that feel exaggerated to you? You feel like that's not as important to the whole thing as it seemed to me? It's important. Uh-huh. I had a different thing I was going to say about the efficacy of the harmonies in that theme, but it was about the first half. Okay, well, you talk about the first half, and then we'll talk about the second half. I mean, this theme, like I said, is very simple contour. It's also very simple chords. It's, you know, one, four, five, one, the simplest possible chords. They're complicated a little bit, and I think a very effective way by keeping the same bass note. It's what's called a pedal point, which is just holding the same note in the bass and then having these chords change on top of it. 
It's just the one in the bass, which, you know, that one isn't in the five chord. But you're still holding it underneath as the melody on top works through these other chords. And I thought that that was a very keenly observed thing to do for flying because like right away in your head it suggests there's a ground and there's stuff happening above the ground. I hear that part as them, you know, coasting on a ground, right? The sort of steady flying. For me, when it kicks down into the six, into the minor chord, mm -hmm. That conveys to me that he has faced his demon in some sense, the demon of being treated really badly. You know, he's an outcast and they're really very rude to him. <laughs> and when he gets this music, these chords. You know, four and five are the basic chords in rock and in folk because they seem to cover kind of both sides of what you need to cover in life. Everyone experiences this a little differently, but I had it put in my head years ago and it continues to seem sort of true to me that five is the like external, rational, decisive chord. When you hear a five, everything is under control and that leads you solidly back to one. And four is the intuitive, emotional, you know, yin to the yang. That's the hmm. softer place that you go down from one more internal, go into some emotion from where you started. And six, you know, that's the relative minor. That's like the shadow side of the major one. You know, nothing changes, but it's the sad flip side of things. And so there's this sense that all of these are primary emotional essentials. So these little loops that go around from four to five to one, or from five to four to one, these basic loops are these little journeys through your psychological cosmos, your world, he here finds this loop that feels like a kind of mastery and integration of like, there's darkness, but he's in touch with the four, that's an emotional grounding. And with that, he has the mastery to get to five and then back. That's so simple. And it's like, I'm trying to articulate just the ABCs of what almost every piece of music is. But the fact that this movie kind of puts that up on the top of a mountain peak, that's what he earned is this, this dun, 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 you know, heart and soul kind of thing. It feels like an identification of the essential journey of the movie, which was to sturdiness and self-sufficiency on his part that he can hold his ground and do what he wants and fly around. And then the interesting thing that happens is it goes da 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 and that's the five of five, right? The five of five is you go up from one to five. Now treat that as one, go up to its five. It's like above, above. That's like extra alertness. That's what you can see from the top of the mast. That's mm -hmm. like... You have to be on your toes to deal with what 5 of 5 might throw at you because it has that extra sharp note in it. It's a challenge to hmm. your grounding, to complacency. So then alternating directly between that and the 4, which has this cross-relation where a note goes from natural to sharp, 
The message seems to be like, this guy is such a hero that he can have deep feelings and deal with whatever dangers might be coming over the horizon. He can be on his toes and in touch with himself. He can handle it. So it's this absolute kind of self-fulfillment, and I'm sure that's what kids love about this. Remember when kids were all psyched about Let It Go, Let It Go from Frozen? Sure. Yeah, I think there's... Uh, it's the same chords, is what you're going to say? I don't know. Is it is it the same chords? I mean, it's definitely got fours and fives and sixes in it. There's a kind of generic all-purpose fantasy empowerment that is very valuable to a kid. That's powerful stuff, and this is a movie that kind of constructs a whole universe that to me seemed like a delivery system for a very strong hit of that at the center of the movie. And everything else kind of hung off of that. When we did E.T., we didn't do a harmonic analysis of it, but I went back to look at that flying theme, and yeah, it is in its musicality about something different. It goes up and up and up, and then it sort of settles magically down from having gone very far afield. It just settles back into one, except now the one has a major seven on top of it. Elliot has had something added to him. He's seen this magic and now the magic is a part of him. Something like that is what's being conveyed by the E.T. theme. But it's not about power exactly. Mm. In this movie, it seemed like Hiccup is told that he's worthless and then he finds that no, he's quite complete and capable. And that he can go around this circle of chords and find his footing in it with his own power. Yeah, he has footing on all of those chords, on all four of those chords. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about going around those circle of chords and deriving power from it in other things. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, in Titanic. More recently, we talked about how you can find this beguiling and, you know, sort of almost trance-inducing power in this circle of chords in Conan, the Barbarian. Same chords. Well, the thought I had about Conan the Barbarian is... What this movie has in common with that uh -huh. is that they were both movies on the you've got to talk about that movie list. <laughs> like People wanted these scores talked about, and I think it's not a coincidence yeah. that both of the movies ultimately are vibe movies. Mm -hmm. The music gives you this vibe, and then the movie is yeah, a, vibe. a nice distraction while you're in the vibe. That's how I imagined kids watching this, and that's ultimately where I got with this movie. Like, yeah, now I'm going to How to Train Your Dragon World, it's a good place where I have certain feelings. And now the fact that the monster they fight at the end of this movie is, eh, not that important a monster, it's irrelevant. Yeah. It's of no dramatic significance. I'm totally with you on that. And I absolutely think that it's about the vibe and Powell's commitment to the vibe. I mean, I think he was committed to kind of feeling his own vibe, which contributes to why he didn't feel it was super important to tie these themes to anything in particular, to instead to deploy them sort of based on what felt like the right vibe. And I think it's appealing for people to try to figure out the treasure map to the, all these themes because this has both a whole book of different themes that you can find being used in different ways all throughout the movie and this kind of uncertainty around how they all 
just add up to this vibe that is so appealing. It's like a particularly satisfying treasure map to try to sort out. Yeah, I understand that that impulse to enroll in fan school is because the real experience is the one that feels like it hasn't been named yet because it is some kind of musical experience and it does remain kind of floating in the air what that thing is Mm -hmm. because they pop up in so many different places. If you connect the dots, all of the dots in this movie, you end up drawing crisscrosses all across it. It doesn't draw a dragon face. It's more like Toothless's drawing. John, I wanted to ask about that sequence, the forbidden friendship sequence, which I think if you asked a fan of this movie, what are the highlight musical sequences, they would say yes, Test Drive and Romantic Flight and Forbidden Friendship. For sure. I was comparing it in my mind to the analogous sequences in E.T., where Elliot is befriending E.T. and was sort of stuck on the difference in framing in that this sequence is all about this rhythmic grid that gets set up. We've got these marimbas, and they're not normal marimbas. No. It's a slate marimba. Yes, it is. Which is made out of bits of slate, stone, and a glass marimba, two of each, I think. And this sound is derived from a piece of temp music that has actually been identified. It's an orchestral work by the band Sigurós, mm-hmm. which was this Norse mythological epic that they wanted to create a mythological sound, so they used these slate marimbas. Smartly and tastefully, didn't ape it too closely, but got that sound across. But it has this regular grid to it. Mm -hmm. By contrast with the very delicate and almost less metrical music that you hear in E.T. for these scenes of tentative moves toward trust and friendship, this emergence of love out of a blank space, Here, the impression is being put across that this is all a pattern, it's all in order, it was all fated. We talked about Thomas Newman going to this sound to kind of suggest that the whole world has an order. Yeah, this is a very Thomas Newman-y sound. On first viewing, it seemed actually like the wrong message to me that, oh, everything's falling into place. Because if this is everything falling into place, like why, whose order is it? What kind of myth is this? We've already had this folk sense of myth and looking in the dragon's eye sense of myth and who started this TikTok going? Of course, once I got used to it, now I know what order it is. It's the order of this movie and the thing that happens in this movie, ah, is starting to happen in this movie. <laughs> I think it works a little better than that on first exposure to it. It sounds like it is a new texture. It sounds like it is not the same film orchestra texture, right? It sounds like... It's different from every other cue, for sure. It is different from every other cue. I mean, it sounds like Tom Newman. It sounds a little like Steve Reich. Yeah, it sounds a little more like Enya than everything else, too. Especially towards the end, when you get that really breathy female choir. I appreciated that this had a totally different texture. I mean, the effect that it immediately has is it makes it feel like a music video. It kind of has the effect of a needle drop. We put on a song on the radio, right? It's like the score version of coming in with some extraneous soundtrack song. When that happens, the signal that it gives you is I can let go of the moment for moment tracking that I was doing in following the story. Cool. 
all the score up until this point is amplifying each moment. Here's what happened in this moment. This moment feels like this. Now we're getting to a spot where it's using this overarching montage feeling which tells you this whole sequence is the data point. This whole sequence is its own entity, so it signals, yeah, like a change in gear in your watching of it. You can kind of watch this with a different story gear in your head engaged. And I appreciated that. I felt like it was a productive gear shift at this point in the movie. You know, he said that he wrote Test Drive first, was his first experiment with how to write music for this movie. Well, this cue, Forbidden Friendship, was the last piece that he wrote in the movie. This was sort of left as a whole in the movie, and the filmmakers were carefully guarding it as a spot where they wanted the music to really come to the fore and tell the story. So he got to this point after having worked out all these different ways that he was going to deconstruct the flying theme ostinato. And like you said earlier, this cue really sort of winds up being about how to make that melody, how to take it from minor to major, how to establish it in its major mode so that we can be satisfied when it shows up again in its major mode and test drive. I appreciate that felt like here is this little petri dish in the middle of the movie that has been walled off from me to take a different approach and convey the origin story of this melody in the major. I thought it was a good instinct to go with this outside sound. I guess I didn't mind that it was outside. I just was aware uh, in CGI and animation, everything is so meticulously controlled. The world is sort of this bonsai world that has been assembled obsessively. What I would like is a depiction, especially in this one where they, as he said, the characters don't speak their hearts very much. A depiction of the heart is worth more to me than a depiction of the kind of gleaming order into which things fall, because it already seems like they are trapped in an artificial, you know, of course I know that by story necessity, they will befriend each other. So to hear this kind of the fairies metronomes going, it plays to the over-rationalized quality of this rather than against it. But again, once everything about the movie is a faded necessity because I've seen the movie before, then I have somewhere to put that music. And it's touching because I know what happens at the end of the third movie and they all grow up and everything changes. So <laughs> this is incredibly touching that it must happen as it did happen and every eighth note knows. Every eighth note knows. Indeed. I just wanted to say that sentence. All right. You want to try and wrap up? Go for it. Well, I said earlier that I admired John Powell for not being too concerned, in some ways being unconcerned with the names of things. I wanted to play this clip of this interview that he gives sitting alongside one of the directors, Dean Dubois. I, I, I apologize to John. I said, I don't know any music terminology. The idea of you having musical terminology is actually an anathema to what really a film composer needs. You, right. sh you shouldn't have to do that. You should be just emotionally reacting to your film, the music how it's working on a, just a story level. And, and all of this other thing is my 
should be my, in theory, my, my job to translate. It just really struck me because he said something that I have said myself so many times to directors. And I just loved hearing him and his director kind of both talk around this notion. So many people who have to deal with music in movies but are not themselves musicians have such anxiety and insecurity about it because they haven't studied music and they don't know all of the names of what's happening musically. Countless times I've had somebody say to me, oh, well, I don't know all the musical names for things. And John Powell comes back with exactly what I always say to people who say that to me, which is essentially, you don't have to worry about the musical names of things. That's my job. It's my job to talk to you about what's happening in the movie and what the music should be doing for it in narrative terms and in emotional terms. It's my job to worry about what that means in musical terms. I just loved hearing him say that because, well, first of all, because I sort of feel like, at least for me, that's a sort of a mission statement of this very show, that anybody can talk about music and what it's doing in movies without having had musical training to know the musical names of things because... Because the thing it's doing is not music. It's doing something to you. Yeah, it's doing something to you. It's doing something to the story. And you can think about it in story terms. And that's those are the decisions that you have to make to make the music. And I think the fact that he has that attitude, you know, ready to go, that he has that response on the tip of his tongue goes hand in hand with this insistence on the themes being malleable and with his sense of what is the vibe of things. And both Powell and Dubois go on to talk about how, yeah, when we're talking about what the music should do, we're talking about the vibe. We're not talking about names of chords. We're not talking about names of themes. We're talking about what is the story. I just think that he has steered his way to using these themes in a way that is genuinely feeling the story. And is that story a kind of corporate formulaic story in certain regards? Yeah, fine, sure. I, I don't think, <laughs> I, I like E.T. better than this. Like, don't get me wrong. I <laughs> But he took it for what it was worth and he let himself feel the worthwhile things to feel in here, the worthwhile vibes to find. You know, I think he really felt it genuinely. And I think that the audience that has made this such a beloved classic has cottoned onto that, has felt that this is a thing that is felt. And that combined with the fact that, like I say, there are secrets to discover in the score. If you're looking at this great book from <laughs> Omni, you can find... Drop it on the table again. <laughs> this one. You can find umpteen other ways in which such and so melody is actually poking its head into this little moment and this little moment. Oh, and it's, look at that. The accompaniment is made out of that in this way here. And you can find all of these things, but it's all a treasure map to feeling that you can't put a name to anyway. So I really admire it. I'm kind of glad to learn that it is widely admired because I think it's really good work. It's really good modern work. <laughs> and I'm glad that I, uh, I went to fan school about it. <laughs> I think it is felt. I also think that there is something about this movie that 
allows that feeling to come across. You know, he, for quite a few other animated films, he did other soaring, flying themes and pretty tunes, like here's something from Happy Feet. (laughs) There's something about the fantasy of this movie that more than usual embraces and gives space to those feelings. And in the sequels, boy, they knew what they had and they gave him bigger and bigger canvases on which to make musically felt sequences. I saw him say that for all these animated movies, he goes to the director and asks them to give him what he calls a stalling number from one to 10. Oh yeah, I love that. I saw that. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, in reference to Carl Stalling, the composer of Looney Tunes scores that we did a bonus episode about, but we haven't talked about much on the main feed here. Carl Stalling being the master of extremely zany, extremely cartoony, extremely kinetic music. Extremely closely scored to picture. Closely scored, Mickey Mouse bouncing off of every action on screen. And he says, do you want like a stalling? of 10 would be an actual Looney Tune and a stalling number of one is, oh, taking this all very seriously. He didn't say what the stalling number, it's sort of a joke, it's not a real system, but here is an animated movie that he brought his serious, emotionally oriented style to. But I did think while watching this sometimes, well, he's kind of doing a emotional Mickey Mousing is not really a fair term, but he is doing a kind of present focused don't worry about the past, don't worry about the future. What is the feeling that I can get out of this scene and the next scene? And when I didn't know what the future was, I felt a little like, why isn't it doing more leading and forecasting and knowing about other things? But this is a quote that I came across just earlier today, and I thought, oh, this is kind of telling in all directions. Again, in the nick of time. In the nick of time. He's talking about how he's a Zimmer of his own now. He's got a workshop with assistants doing orchestration work for him, and he says, as he tries to explain to his assistants and orchestrators as best he can what the function of the scene is, what the dramatic importance of all of the melodies are, because he thinks that's important to knowing what to do with them. Yeah, there you go. And in saying this, he says... I think it's very important that they understand exactly what I'm trying to do in each scene uh, and what the point of each you know, melody is doing. I'm, I'm a big stickler for kind of getting sort of logic Mm. internal logic in the thing. I mean, I don't think it matters to that many people, but it's just part of my own sort of um, little um, ace, you know, OCD. Madness. Um, madness yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I thought, oh, I, I that feels it, so it, telling that he comes out of this Zimmer school culture of the main yeah, thing I, is I to serve the moment, to intensify the moment, to meet the moment. He actually also says in this interview, he says so much scoring these days tends to kind of what you see is what you get. It looks at the picture and then it matches the picture. It's amazing how you can just move on and write things in scenes and you don't, you're not really sort of, you're just reacting to what you see. Mm. Um, there's a lot of scoring goes like goes on like that. And I mean, I think everybody's guilty of it. Uh, I have been, um, but I've tried to get out of that. And that he aspires to have his melodies be doing work that knows about the drama and knows about functions beyond what's happening in this moment. I, in watching the movie, felt like this is a score that 
does less of that knowing about the rest of the movie than I think I want in my heart. And I was aware of the shortfall in places where I felt like there was a shortfall. But it's because he is in a time and a culture and like all the movies around him are doing essentially none of that. And here's someone who like as a matter of principle, but he thinks of it, he thinks of it as like, oh, I'm weird. I have this weird OCD thing where I want every melody to mean something. And uh, <laughs> it's like he is, has to force that in the side door because he does have skill and taste and the temperament to be, I think, a truly great all-time film composer. But he's kind of working up to it when like no one is asking for that. Mm. Yes, of course, DreamWorks didn't ask him to write a dramaturgically complete vision of the score. They asked him to write each of the scenes. Please write scene three, and then please write scene seven, and then please write scene five. And then his OCD, as he calls it, he wants everything to mean something, and it is there. To some degree, it is there, and that degree is refreshing and exciting in this day and age. And I know that 13 years ago is not exactly this day and age anymore, but you know, his sequels all the way up to 2019, I felt like as I watched those, the language and the aspirations of what he was doing rose and rose. I, I've said on a bunch of things, I wish modern scores were willing to own the power of the music and talk and do storytelling and do some map making, give me a world and not just a color. And this does that. And of course, of course people are excited about that. And if I had grown up with it, I'm sure I would say it was one of the great scores of all time because that's how things are when you grow up with them. I totally get it. And it was a pleasure to spend all this time with it. But boy, my head is just full of dragons right now. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to let them out. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I hear that. I hear that. I really am glad to hear you say that you gained more appreciation of this score the more you heard it, the more times you saw the movie. But indeed, now it's time to see a different movie. What do we got? Well, we have, as usual, an assortment of movies that have been winnowed down by our esoteric winnowing process, courtesy of the patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much for your help in esoterically winnowing. Esoteric winnowers wanted. Come, <laughs> come on down. You know who you are. But the point is they don't winnow it down to one. They winnow it down to a bunch. And now those bunch are rattling around in there, represented by the sound of lottery balls. So here we go. All right, let's see if you can pull the right lever on your flight mechanism thing. Oh, like in How to Train Your Dragon. Yes. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I really, for a second, I was like, you don't pull a lever. Oh, all right. Okay. Here we go. I am not pulling a lever. I'm reaching into the balls, which I guess like they're being air blown around, so it's safe to reach in. It's very safe. Okay, grab one. And it says yes? that we will be talking about David Shire's score to the 1974 paranoia thriller The Conversation. Whoa. You know, I've never seen this movie, Andy, but I've always wanted to. You haven't? Oh, I've seen it quite a few times. Oh. Oh, I like this movie a lot. Oh, you do? Okay. And and this score, I think I'm correct in saying, is a piano solo, which will be a first for this show and is a cool kind of rarity in the world of movie scores. So that'll be fun. That is cool. I can think of like one other piano solo score off the top of my head that maybe it'll come up in comparison. Yeah. I mean, I'm a pianist by nature, so I think I'll enjoy talking about that. You too, right? By nature, yeah. Uh, yeah, that should be really cool. And David Shire, not yet named on this show, right? That's a really good point. I think, except maybe did we mention that he was married to Talia Shire when we've <laughs> met Talia on a couple of other occasions? I don't know. I don't know if that came up, but it wouldn't have been very important if it did come up. And now it'll be very important because it'll be the subject of the episode. Now it's very important. 
I, I count on you, John, to be at this point the one who says, and if you want to be very important, <laughs> then <laughs> I can't do a, a terrible segue. It's up to you. Thanks, Andy. I sure can do a terrible segue. If you want to be very important, <laughs> you can join us on Patreon and join the team of esoteric winnowers that we have plugging away <laughs> behind the scenes. What a rewarding task they all have. Of course, we have some bonus content there. Of course. I want to mention that the very first episode of bonus content that we put on our Patreon feed is an episode about Die Hard, which you might want to uh, revisit around this time of year. It might be helpful for your uh, holiday party conversation. <laughs> That's what you said at the time. I know. And sometimes we put up extra bonus behind-the-scenes cutting room floor clippings. Maybe there'll be some of those for this episode. I wouldn't be shocked. Or, of course, we're always grateful if you just leave a review on your podcast app or in the streets, anywhere. From the rooftops. We appreciate the reviews. And you can write to us over email at scoresettlers at gmail.com. Thanks again to Tim at Omni Music Publishing for sending us these scores. And don't forget oh, that's to right. get your own copy. He's also published score volumes for other scores that we've talked about on the show, like Back to the Future and Batman and North by Northwest. So check it out and use the discount code Dragon Discount 75. Very good, yes. Till the end of March. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks so much for talking, John. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you for talking, Andy. It's my nature. Good night. Thank you.